वसुदेवसुत कंसचाणुरमर्दनम परमानंदम कृष्णम वंदे जगद्गुरु so we are studying the bhagavad gita we are on the ninth chapter and i had mentioned earlier that uh, the bhagavad gita divided into 18 chapters one way of looking at the whole gita is that you can divide it into three three parts of six chapters each chapter 1 to 6 7 to 12 and then 13 to 18 what would these three these divisions mean the central teaching of vedanta is tattvamasi you are that or that thou art according to some teachers madhusudan saraswati for example um the gita can be divided into three parts based on this central teaching that thou art you are brahman so the first part the first six chapters talks about the nature our real nature who we are the nature of the self that we are not body mind that we are witness consciousness and so on the second six chapters talks about god god of the god of religion you know, the creator preserver destroyer of this world uh, which is worshiped as god in all theistic traditions and whose incarnation is krishna so that's the second six chapters talks about god the last six chapters are supposed to be about the identity you are that how in what sense you're not literally god sorry but <laughs> uh in what sense are you identical with with the divine um of course it's a very broad way of looking at it and in each of these sections there are many things uh, not just the nature of the soul or god or the identity there are many many things are talked about anyhow the point of all of this is this is the big picture the really big picture which is the whole of the bhagavad gita the point of saying all this is we are in the ninth chapter which is uh in the middle of the second section where the discussion is about god so what's going what's going on now is primarily about god about ishvara bhagavan and in today's discussion you will see it's all about god devotion and how that sets us free from samsara um krishna before this he has talked about how you know a question might be raised that if in all rituals in the worship of all deities ultimately you are the reality krishna or god ishvara bhagavan is the reality be, um, behind all of these rituals then why is it not that if someone does vedic worship uh, vedic sacrifice all of those worship that should be your worship and krishna explains that it is true that all worship ultimately comes to me because i exist in all forms you know in all beings both um, you know, sentient beings and deities also everything however those worship those kinds of vedic worship rituals are done with worldly desires or other worldly desires you know either i want wealth or um, success in this world or you know rainfall conquering enemies things like that or people want to go to a heaven after death a variety of delectable heavens are on offer so you want to go to a, um, one of these heavens these are the worldly or other worldly desires and since they want that krishna says they don't want me they don't want god they don't want enlightenment they don't want freedom so they get what they want they will not get freedom they will they will get heaven after death they will get what they want but those who want me they get me that means what is the result of that freedom moksha now he comes to the the next three verses are very important very beautiful verses um the question may be raised that the vedic sacrifices which constituted sort of um, you know the mainstream religion in those days they were expensive affairs very elaborate expensive big affairs so if those are smaller and you are the supreme lord then your worship must be a really expensive affair it must be really very difficult to worship god and so he explains here no in on on the contrary it's the easiest it will uh, not bankrupt you not at all 
and I'm not looking for an elaborate worship. It's more devotion, love, which God wants. So that's the theme of the 26th uh, verse. 26th and 27th verses are really beautiful. Today we have 26, 27, and 28. Uh, very beautiful verses. And they, are, they form a complete unit in themselves, these three verses. 26. Patram pushpam phalam toyam Patram pushpam phalam toyam Yome bhaktya prayachati Yome bhaktya prayachati Tadaham bhakti uparitam Tadaham bhakti uparitam Ashnami prayatatmanaha Ashnami prayatatmanaha he who offers, he who with devotion offers me a leaf, a flower, a fruit, or water. That devout offering of the pure-minded one, I accept. So this is an incredible thing. Not an elaborate sacrifice, not extraordinary rituals, mantras, and a host of priests. Not like that. Offer me a fruit, a flower, a leaf, some, or maybe water. Coming close to Shivaratri, you see, those are the uh, offerings which are made in the puja of Shiva. Uh, fruits and leaves and flour and uh, maybe milk. So simply you offer it with devotion, he says, bhaktya, with devotion. Such this offering of a pure minded one, I accept. The two products of maya the power of god in this samsara we see are objects things things in this world and activities kriya and artha artha means objects and kriya activities and these are the two if we are not careful these are the two which bind us in samsara how it binds us in samsara we want those things we are here for certain things in samsara and we do action for that and thus we are bound in samsara. Yeah. Our attitude to things is, I like these things, I want more of these, and ownership, I want these. And our attitude to actions is, I am the doer of these actions. The moment I am the doer of these actions, and what, what am I doing them for? For getting those things. If I'm the doer of these actions for getting those things, then I'm also the what is called bhokta. Bhokta means the, the experiencer. Often it's translated as enjoyer. Not always enjoyment, mostly not enjoyment. It's a sufferer. Enjoyer and sufferer. The experiencer of the results of action. This is karma. Good, good, bad, bad, and none escape the law. Whosoever wears the form, wears the chain too. What is the chain? This series of um, cause and effect which I have set in motion since ancient births. Prachina janma karma samskara. From ancient times we have set in, in, in place a chain of cause and effect. The result of which is what we see. Twofold. Things keep happening to us in the world. Good and bad. Desirable and undesirable. Why do those things happen to us in the world? We have set in motion karma. This cause and effect. Not entirely individual, there's also community and all of that. So we've set in motion karma and that the results are coming to us. And twofold, inside us also, the kind of person I am, that is also because of karma samskara. The way I have been in this life and past lives that has conditioned me to be the kind of person I am. Now the problem with this is, it's a great bondage. Especially when we want spiritual freedom, we soon notice... <laughs> We cannot ignore our past. Our past has made us a certain kind of person. We have designed, not carefully, in fact most carelessly, we have made a life for ourselves which we see and we seem to be trapped in it. And worse, we have become a certain kind of person. Yes, we are all pure consciousness, existence, consciousness, bliss, Satchidananda, that's what's called Swarupa, our real nature. But there's something called Swabhava, the particular shade and flavor of personality each one of us has got. And mostly it's a prison. Hmm. What happens is, when we read about spiritual life and all these powerful spiritual practices, yes, they are powerful. 
Prayer is powerful. Meditation is powerful. Mantra Japa is powerful. Vedantic inquiry most powerful. If we do it right. Mostly we can't do it right. We can't even make a proper beginning. The reason being, we seem to be uh, unable to do so. Not, either the willpower is not strong enough, either we are not disciplined enough, or we do really don't even want it enough. <coughs> and that's because of the kind of personality we have got. Our samskaras, this is called swabhava. Swabhava and swarupa are two different things. Swarupa, our essential nature. Our essential nature is divine, existence, consciousness, bliss. That's perfect. Everybody uh, has this. But the outer layer, the, the covering of that, the personality, the tendencies, the samskaras, the, what we have generated, what we have now, the conditioning of the mind, that is the problem. How do you overcome it? Two powerful practices will be given, easy to do and powerful with quick results. Very transformative practices and freeing practices will be given now. These two, how, what, are the, what do these practices involve? These two. Things of the world. Atta, things of the world. How to use them, not to get trapped in them, but to use them in, in, uh, for freedom. So basically it'll, he will say how to offer it, everything to God. Just to offer everything to God and by that offering how does one become free? And second, actions, Kriya, actions. How to channelize, direct all our actions to God and thereby be free of the, um, the bondage of action, of karma. And then what will be the result of that? So the 26th verse is offering to God, doing things for God or giving to God. 26th verse. 27th verse is working, action for God. And 28th verse is the result of this. So that's the uh, story today. So here he says, Patram Pushpam Phalam Toyam Yome Bhaktya Prayachati. The first point he makes is, it's really easy. It's as easy as offering a leaf or a flower or a few fruits or water, but with devotion. Bhaktya, with devotion. God ac accepts that which is given in love. It's not so much of a question of, you know, the, how gorgeous are the offerings, how, how many Sanskrit mantras have you chanted, uh, um, whether you have an array of, of priests. And I remember a homa, a Vedic sacrifice performed, and the monk who did it, uh, I mean, who was there, so he told me that people don't understand. You know, like when somebody said, the homa was done very well. And this monk asked that person, how did you know? Well, the flames went pretty high, you know. <laughs> <laughs> no, the flames don't have to go, the, the sacrificial fire, they don't have to go very high. <laughs> what is done with, uh, with devotion? So that the Lord accepts. There is, the beautiful stories are there to, to this point. There's the story of... Um, of Draupadi, you know, when they were in exile and she had this pot which, uh, which had food in it and it would be enough to feed everybody in, the, I mean, the, her husbands and the people uh, in the, in the, around them, the small group of people and every day it would be full but it would be enough just for one meal and uh, the last bit she would eat herself. Now, one day what happened was that the great sage, I think it was Durvasa probably, who was always noted for his hot temper. So he uh, arrives with his thousands of disciples. It's a test for the Pandavas and they're in the forest. How can they feed the sage and all his disciples? He says, I'm going to take a bath in the river and we are all going to come and eat at your place. But by the time they, and they arrive strategically when they have already had the meal, so there's no chance of filling up the pot again. And Draupadi is, in, uh, is terrified. How is she going to feed so many people? And there's no food anyway because everybody's eaten. And then she prays to Krishna and Krishna turns up. And you know this story, it's a very well-known story. Krishna come, turn, turns up and she's relieved. Oh, Krishna will do something, will save us. No, Krishna says, feed me. <laughs> and she goes, so you too. <laughs> but there is no food. 
Krishna said, just take a look. I know I have finished eating. There is no food left in that pot. But take a look. She, he find, she finds one grain. And Krishna says, give that to me. And she, he take, puts it in his mouth with great relish. And he says, I am quite full. And lo and behold, the, the sage, the terrible sage and all his disciples who had taken a bath were coming. Suddenly they all felt very full. You know, They started burping. And, <laughs> they all, and they said, we just don't have any appetite left. We can't eat anymore. We, we feel so full. So, tasmin tushte jagat tushtam. When the Lord is satisfied, the universe is satisfied. So Krishna knows that. He is identified with the entire universe. If he is happy, then everybody is fulfilled. Everybody is satisfied. So that's how Draupadi by offering just a grain of um, rice to Krishna satisfied the Lord. There's another story not so well known. I don't know how many of you have heard of have you heard of Gajendra Moksha? There's some some of you, many of you may have heard. It's the story of the elephant who was rescued by Vishnu. So it's a very cute story. You find it in the Bhagavatam. Uh, the, the, the basic story is well known. The background story is stories because there are always stories within stories. I'll tell you a couple of stories today. <laughs> story time. So Gajendra Moksha is, is a very well known um, st- story of, uh, of devotion. The basic story is pretty well known. It's in the Bhagavatam. So there was this um, um, great elephant, Gajendra. Gajendra literally means the lord of the elephants or the king of the elephants. The great elephant who was a devotee of uh, Vishnu. Why was the elephant a devotee of Vishnu? Those stories are in the background. I'll tell you later. But first the basic story. So, uh, and he would worship Vishnu every day. In Sanskrit, I think. So one day, he goes to this um, pool to take his bath. And uh, there's a big crocodile there, which comes and catches hold of his leg. And he can't get get out of it. It's uh, like a swamp and the crocodile has got his his, uh, foot and he's in great pain. It's a giant crocodile. And he struggles and struggles. All the other elephants, his family, they come to the shores. It's quite something like out of National Geographic or Discovery Channel. They come to the shores of the Great Lake, but they are afraid to get into it. And they watch in worry and uh, fear, with mounting fear, when the, um, you know, the great, their leader, uh, the Gajendra, the great elephant, he can't escape. He trumpets and he groans, but he is getting weaker, faster and faster, and he's beginning to be dragged into the depths of the of the lake uh, and he prays to Vishnu. Now he would pray to Vishnu by offering lotuses from the lake. He would usually pick up one. And that his last prayer, you know, he somehow with his last strength he plucks one lotus and he offers it to Vishnu who appears in the sky and uh, and, and uh, Gajendra the elephant he chants this wonderful uh, hymn which is even now chanted to Vishnu. Uh, Gajendra Stotram. I think you will find it. I think on the, on the internet also the chanting is there. It's very beautiful. It's from the uh, Bhagavatam, and very if you re- if you see, it's a hymn to God, but it's so non-dualistic. It talks about that one reality in which the entire universe is exists, uh, from which the entire universe has come, and which is itself the entire universe, Brahman. Which is pure consciousness. So the Gajendra Moksha Stotram, if you, if you Gajendra Stotram, if you re, if you read it, it, it's very elevating. So the elephant uh, chants this uh, hymn, of course, in perfect Sanskrit, and it's so touching. You know, he takes this. He's dying. He's being pulled into the lake, but he takes this lotus in his trunk and he holds it up to Vishnu, who has appeared in the sky. So if you, in fact. If you look at it on the net, you'll find this artwork also. This is, uh, often the artwork is the elephant being pulled in by this uh, um, crocodile into the lake and Vishnu appearing in the sky and the elephant holding up a lotus to Vishnu. So that's a very... Um, I mean, it's symbolic. It's supposed to be symbolic. We are the sentient being, the elephant. We're stuck in this physical body. Um, elephantine. I mean, no matter how skinny you are, it's still a physical body, a gross body. <laughs> and we are sinking in samsara. We can't get we can't get out because of this swabhav or this what we have generated over lifetimes. We are very limited. We know we read all the, all of these, attend all the classes, and read the books, and we know all about meditation and uh, philosophy and devotion. But we can't do it almost. We can't do anything almost. 
you know, we're still the little bit of change that we can make in ourselves is uh, is minuscule. So that we are sinking in samsara, and now we can only pray to the Lord. But why should the Lord respond to us? You offer Him something, a flower. So that's the symbology. And of course, uh, Vishnu comes, God comes, and uh, He is overwhelmed with the devotion of Gajendra, and He sends His celestial weapon, the Sudarshan Chakra, the discus. Some of you look puzzled. Yeah, if you grew up in India, you wouldn't look puzzled. You would have heard these stories again and again from childhood. So there is a discus. The, the, it goes round and round and it cuts up the head of evildoers. So the discus comes flaming from the skies and cuts the evil crocodile to pieces. And so that's the story. But the background, why is there a crocodile and why is there an elephant chanting in Sanskrit and Vishnu? <laughs> the background story is, uh, uh, there are stories within stories. The elephant was actually in his past life was the great king Indradyumna. Indradyumna was a great king and a devotee of Vishnu. In his old age, he gave up his kingdom and he retreated to the bank of a river with a little cottage and where he spent his time in meditating on, on God and, and um, living a most austere and simple life. But what happened was the great sage, once again, made his appearance. This time it was, I think, Agastya probably. Uh, and uh, uh, he was so Vindadyumna was meditating on Vishnu and didn't uh, notice that the great sage has come so he did not bow down to him or show him proper respect because of which the sage all of these sages seem to have terrible tempers <laughs> was furious with the king and said you you uh, like you're just like a dull elephant but elephants actually are not dull mm. anyway just like a dull elephant be you an elephant and suffer in an animal birth uh, and sink in the, in the you know the whirlpool the lake of samsara indradyumna fell at his feet and begged for his forgi forgiveness the sage said no i can't take back the words however keep on worshiping the lord and the lord will set you free um, so not only the lord saved him from the crocodile but uh, that saving was also saving from samsara and gave him moksha but he had to be born once again as an elephant. <laughs> and even more interesting is the villain of the piece, the crocodile. The crocodile, before becoming a crocodile, was a Gandharva. Uh, and Gandharvas are celestial artists, you know, musicians, dancers, painters. Uh, they, they are brilliant, talented, and uh, uh, they live in this place, the celestial uh, heaven called Gandharva Loka where it's always song and dance and they're very um, uh, aesthetic creatures also fun loving also mischievous so you can imagine their world being something like the Juilliard school or something like that you know so they are very talented very artistic uh, very uh, elevated but also mischievous among the Gandharvas among the noted Gandharvas are um, uh, two famous musicians who entertain Brahma, not Brahman, Brahma. And their names are, wait for it, Haha and Hu Hu. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you got it right, Haha. <laughs> now, among the, these two, Hu Hu was uh, one day, he was taking a bath in the river, and uh, he noticed uh, the, uh, the sage, another sage, Devala. Now, if he knew all these backstories, he would have been careful. He knows what happens to if you annoy a sage. But he didn't know. So he saw this devil and being a mischievous Gandharva, who who <laughs> swam under the water and pulled the sage's legs. When the sage had gone into the water to do his daily rituals, the Sandhya rituals, and he literally, not uh, figuratively, actually pulled the leg legs of the sage. And the sage, of course, you know the consequence. The sage Devala was furious and he cursed. He said, you wretch, you, you, you will be born as a crocodile who, who keep on grabbing onto animals' legs. Yeah. And that, that's going to be your, your future. And uh, the poor Gandharva immediately fell at his feet again, caught hold of his feet again, <laughs> but this time not to pull, but to beg for forgiveness. The sage said, no, nothing can be done. Once I've said it, you're going, this is going to happen. However... Uh, one day, 
you will catch hold of a great devotee of the Lord and the Lord will come and kill you and set you free from your crocodile birth and in fact give you freedom. Freedom from samsara also. So this is your last birth also. And so that's the backstory. <laughs> so not only the Indra who was Gajendra became free, also Huhu, the <laughs> crocodile became free uh, because of uh, the devotion of Gajendra towards Vishnu. But it all was uh, occasioned by the offering of a flower, the elephant. So if you see the artwork, the elephant holds up a flower. It's very touching actually. In the midst of all the distress and pain and everything, he offers this flower to Vishnu. And Krishna says here, offer me a leaf or a flower or fruits. There is very touching story of, uh, of this poor old lady who came to meet Sri Ramakrishna. She had heard about Sri Ramakrishna and she felt great deal of devotion to him. That is the Paramahamsa of Dakshineshwar. So she traveled, she, got, she was very poor. So she got a few sweets which were inexpensive, which were very, uh, very cheap basically. And she came to Dakshineshwar to meet him and offer it to him. But then she felt shy and diffident. And there were all these people around him. She didn't even dare to go into his room. So she sat by the bank of the river, the Ganga there. And uh, um, sadly because she, she felt she couldn't really approach him. Now Sri Ramakrishna, so this story I heard it from Swami Chaitanya Ji. So Sri Ramakrishna was in his room talking to the devotees in an ecstatic mood. Suddenly he stood up and he ran out of the room. He raced out of the room to the river. And he went, the people were sitting near the river, he went straight up to that old lady and looked at her and said, Hello there, I'm hungry. Do you have something for me? <laughs> and in amazement, she um, you know, shyly bought out. She had hidden the uh, little packet of sweets under uh, the folds of her cloth. She bought it out and held it up before him. And he took it and then he ate up all of it immediately. And then uh, just as quickly as he had come, he raced back to his room again. <laughs> uh, so... I accept that which is offered with devotion. Bhaktiya, the word bhakti is, is uh, mentioned twice in this verse. Bhaktiya prayachati, that which is offered with love. So offered with love, um, not offered mechanically, without feeling. You know, it's inwardly offered. And not as part of a daily ritual worship, inwardly offered and um, not offered, you know, like I'm doing this like a shopkeeping, what Vivekananda calls a shopkeeping religion. I offered this, I want something in return. No, you offer it as an offering of love. I don't want anything in return. So bhakti, that's one use of the word bhakti. The second one, bhakti uparitam mashnami. The thing which is offered, the fruit, the flower, we, uh, whatever, sweets, whatever you offer that thing is offered as love bhakti uparitam it means what is actually being offered here is an inner meaning of this is not the item itself it's a very humble thing the flower or the fruit or the whatever you offer water is a very humble thing what's actually being offered is love it's not an object it is love which is being offered to God and because it is offered to God, God accepts, not only accepts, look how beautifully he says, Ashnami, I eat it. What's the difference between accepting it and eating it? Eating it, you make it one with yourself. You consume it, you take it inside. God eats it up if it is love. Others, we may accept. Some may not accept. But that which is offered with love, not only he accepts, he says, I eat it. The offerings, the food offerings which are made in our pujas, actually the deity, when it is properly done, the deity accepts it. In both in the case of Sri Ramakrishna and Masharada, they have had this mystical experience. Both of them have, have testified to it, that when it is offered to the deity, properly, with devotion, they said that a ray of light comes out from the deity, actually from the eyes of the deity. They call it Drishti Bhoga. And it touches every item which has been offered. So it, it is like accepting or eating. Drishti Bhoga means eating with seeing, with the eyes. 
And this is part of the puja. We, we believe this. But Sri Ramakrishna and Masharada also, they actually had a mystical experience seeing that it happened. It happens really. Um, and that transforms the food. This is a part of the, the ritualistic puja. It's a part of the puja technology. So it is believed, and I also believe it. And I, I uh, you know, devotees, they feel it. Once the food is offered and it becomes prasada, it is qualitatively different. Qualitatively different. I mean, I can't explain it, but it is the feeling of um, many devotees. That the same food item, if you cook it and you eat it, it tastes like one thing. You cook it and you offer it properly and then you eat it as prasad, it tastes subtly different and much better. Somehow. Somehow. I have noticed it in the prasad in Belurmat, for example, where the food, the pious is offered to Sri Ramakrishna. Uh, we get very little of it because it's just one bowl which is offered and there are 300 monks. So uh, you might get Maybe one spoon or less than one spoon. Sometimes it's less. Um, if the milk is less, the quantity of uh, the pious offering, the you know what would you call it, in, uh, uh, the milk pudding, porridge, milk porridge offering is less. So you get one spoon. I remember there were times when it, the quantity was so less. It's given to all the monks who sit. We sit on the floor, and uh, depending on the sp size of the spoon, we know that the quantity is more or less. If there's a good size spoon, we know that the, there's quantity is sufficient that night. <laughs> and if the tiny spoon, we realize there isn't much. So, And the trick is to give it in the plate of each of the monks and race before they catch you. <laughs> before they get mad at you. Why so little? By the time you're gone, <laughs> they can't catch you anymore. <laughs> and I have everybody on for that. I've done it also. <laughs> I've done it. And it's difficult because you have to balance a bowl in your hand and it's hot. And uh, then there's a spoon and everybody's sitting on the floor. So you have to bend down and give like that. <laughs> and you have to race along. There are maybe 24 people on both sides of, of each row. So it takes some doing. And sometimes, that was before my time, I heard the quantity was so little, you take a spoon and then sort of shake it over the plate of everybody. <laughs> And one monk, one monk said, not on the plate, just give it as, you know, like I can put it on my head, you know. <laughs> it's so little, <laughs> like a bindi, give it to me, <laughs> I can put it on my head. <laughs> but it tastes different, I, I testify to that, it tastes different. And in, in many of the great temples, ancient temples in India, the prasada, the, which is offered, the bhoga, which becomes prasada after being offered, they are well known for the exquisite taste of that. But it's a kind of a divine taste. It's not a, like, you know, Manhattan is a foodies place. So you have got all sorts of exquisite food here. But it's not like that. It's the same food, but it's, um, I don't know, you can call it a divine taste or something. Even just eating it is, uh, is uplifting. Now you, one might say that it's psychological, you know. It's, uh, you are de devoted and you believe it. True, maybe. Um... But I, I mean, it's still, you can sense it. You can taste the difference. I know in Puri, the prasad from the Jagannath Puri temple. So it is, it's actually considered a delicacy. It's a ritual, a devotional thing to um, have that prasad. But the taste of it is also very famous. The taste is very famous. So it transforms. Uh, that's another part of it. The offering is actually the, the mystical experience that it is accepted by God and it is transformed when uh, God accepts it. So this is offering objects to God. Then the next one, he says, our actions. Twenty seventh. An even more beautiful verse. Yatkaroshi Yadashnasi Yatkaroshi Yadashnasi Yadjuhoshi Dadasiyat Yadjuhoshi Dadasiyat Yattapasya Sikanteya Yattapasya Sikanteya Tatkurushva Madarpanam Tatkurushva Madarpanam Whatever you do or eat or sacrifice or give, whatever austerity you perform, that, O son of Kunti, 
offer unto me. So truly beautiful verse. The same thing which binds us in samsara, karma, action, the same thing can set us free. How do you do that? What's the secret? What's the technology behind it? He says, whatever you do, yat karoshi. See, the beauty of this thing is, the earlier one, that's still a specific ritual. That whatever you have, you, um, you, you know, simplest thing also, you procure them and mentally, at least ritualistically, offer it to God. But here, not even a specific ritual. Whatever you're doing anyway, as a matter of course, throughout the day, that you offer to God as actions. So he says, Yat Karoshi. See, the Lord has given us freedom. The Lord has given us freedom. Ishwar has given us a bit of free will. And what this verse says is actually, what do you do with that free will? With the, be the best use of that free will? This is always a discussion, matter of discussion among uh, spiritual seekers. Do we have free will or not? We seem to have free will. But uh, upon investigation, it seems that we do not have free will. And in fact, Sri Ramakrishna and others, many great saints have said, we don't have free will. It's all the will of God. So what do you do in this case? The best article, the best analysis of this I have found, I mentioned it earlier, is Professor Rendam Chakravarti. He, had, he has written this article called um, Why Pray to a God Who Can Hear the Anklets on an Ant's Feet. That's a quote from Sri Ramakrishna. Sri Ramakrishna says, God hears everything. He hears the sound of the anklets on the feet of an ant. So this requires some explanation. Little children wear anklets like toddlers. In uh, India, they put anklets on the uh, ankles of little children. So they make a uh, jingling sound when they walk. Mm. Some variant of that is nowadays, you know, you've seen little kids with squeaky shoes. <laughs> I guess it encourages them to watch, yes. Squeaking and flashing lights and stuff like that. So anklets on the uh, feet of little children. Now imagine if the anklets are on the feet of an ant. How tiny they would be. And what a tiny sound they would make. But even that God hears. So Sri Ramakrishna said this. Now the philosopher asks, if God hears all of that, then why do you have to pray? God knows everything. And then, actually the, the essay is uh, an analysis of this concept of free will. That's what it's about. So first of all, he starts off by uh, saying that we all have this feeling of free will. Everybody feels it. Not only we feel it, uh, it is assumed. See, the law assumes free will. Why would anybody arrest a person and throw a person in jail and, uh, uh, you know, um, uh, uh, unless it's assumed that the person has done mischief out of free will. In fact, one good defense is that the mischief was done not out of free will. It was under coercion or some mitigating circumstances were there. So free will is assumed by law. Free will is assumed by advertisement. Uh, why does why there so billions of dollars spent on advertisement in order to influence uh, our free will so that uh, we can buy the things the advertiser wants us to buy. Free will is assumed in consumer choice. F so free will is assumed everywhere in society. Then in the second level, this is the first level, the second level is when we investigate free will, we find that there is actually no free will. So Arindam Chakravati shows um, in philosophy, in religion, even in neuroscience, the latest discoveries, they're beginning to show that there actually isn't free will. We feel we have free will. Society assumes we have free will. We cannot function without the concept of free will. But actually, probably there isn't free will. Um, there are scientific reasons. It's called determinism. Anyway, that's a big part of that article. And then you... Uh, so upshot, the third level, the final, what's the point of that entire article, which I'm trying to make here? The end, the third part he says is, there is freedom. Vivekananda also says, free will is a misnomer. Will is already within maya, within causation. So there's no freedom within maya. But there is freedom beyond maya. The Atman is free. There's no freedom within the law of karma. But beyond the law of karma, you are there. Atman, Satchidananda, you are free. In the Vivekananda's famous verse, which I just quoted, Good, good, bad, bad, none escape the law. That's the law of karma. Whosoever wears a form, wears the chain to. What's the chain? Each form has been, each body has been produced by past karma. So it is a chain. But, what does Vedanta say? Far beyond name and form is Atman ever free. Know thou art that sannyasi bold. Say Om Tat Sat Om. So this is Vedantic uh, message. That you realize your nature, which is beyond causation, beyond samsara, beyond maya. So there is freedom 
ultimately not free will but freedom now what do you make of all of this this is what uh, the beauty of that article by professor chakravarti he says the real use of free will is that first level you admit that you feel you have free will second level you admit upon philosophical religious scientific investigation there isn't free will third level that there is freedom to be attained then what do you do what do you do what's the point of it the practical uh, application the practical application is to take this illusion of free will which we feel we feel it but investigation re- reveals that's an illusion and it use that illusion to acknowledge that only the lord is free to continuously submit to continuously use that illusion of freedom to say that not i but thou not i but thou continuously surrender to the lord so notice it's a beautiful solution because it does both things it honors our sense of free will because you are doing something you have a choice but it also acknowledges the wisdom that ultimately there is no free will that ultimately there only freedom is there beyond maya within maya no free will so arindam chakravarti says in that article you continuously say namaha namaha means salutations but he plays on the word he says na mama not mine thine thine all objects everything in this world is for you and all my activities are a worship of you so that is the core idea behind this we have been given freedom quote on quote by the lord and the best use of that freedom is to surrender it not to the world not to the world uh, to to god the source of that freedom so he says yat karoshi we have freedom to do apparently but then whatever you do you do it for my sake for the sake of god so yat karoshi whatever you do but what do we do he gives he divides this doing into five categories and says do all of them for god ashnasi whatever you consume so it stands for whatever we do for ourselves with this body mind whatever we eat for example yeah. whatever we drink for example whatever we consume with our eyes and ears uh, the uh, television serials that we see the music that we hear uh, the conversations that we whatever is entering into this body mind complex think of it as an offering to god whatever we do for this body we take rest at night one of the songs beautiful songs of the divine mother is shayane karo um uh, pranamogan nidrai like make karo dhyan that in when you lie down you visualize you feel that you are you are lying down in the temple and doing pranam salutations like a full body salutations to the lord and in the de- in sleep think of it as i'm meditating on the divine mother so it's nice you don't have to meditate you actually can sleep but you think of <laughs> so everything that is done for this body consumption maintenance health whether it is food or drink or medicine all of that is an offering to the lord the lord is here in this body think of it visualize it you are feeding the lord you are offering it to the lord which is actually a fact no we are eating that's a delusion this body the digestive processes the hunger the entire process of you know food and consumption and assimilation of which part of this do we have control over nothing nothing it's being done by something call it nature call it god whatever it is prakriti god so yadashnasi whatever is consumed not only consumed whatever is done for this body mind do it uh, for the lord for krishna says do it for me now it helps if you have a deity not god in general and abstract the feeling will come when it's personal krishna rama my divine mother durga kali uh, rama krishna christ in some form if i have a personal deity i can relate to that's why we have the whole idea of ishta devata um, god in a particular form which guru gives to you yadashnasi then next he says yad juhosi dadasiyat two kinds of action that we do not for ourselves for the world one is religious action juhosi literally the term is used for uh, sacrificial offerings so the offerings that we make in a sacrificial fire uh, 
Juhomi, I give. Um, in fact, the core idea of Yagya, Yagya is, the uh, is the Sanskrit term for Vedic fire sacrifice. The core idea is, this is not mine, uh, this is for the, for, for the deity. That is the meaning of Idam na mama idam indraya swaha. This is not for me, this is for the deity Indra. So this is the basic idea of um, of a yagya, of a fire sacrifice. So every religious activity that I perform, yajjuhoshi, it could be offerings in a temple, it could be donation to your um, um, you know, church or temple, it could be ritualistic offerings of what you did earlier, flower, fruit, uh, water, whatever it is. Whatever you offer religiously, you offer unto me, uh, unto God. Yad dadasi, he says. Whatever you offer to the world, so to the people around you, in your family, in your community, in your place of business, in your place of work, it's not just, if you do it voluntarily, if you do it out of charity, if you do it as, as uh, offering to, you know, pe you're helping people, that's good, that's extra powerful. But even if it's just part of your regular job, that's very important. You're doing a regular job. You might say, but I'm not offering it. I'm earning money there. Good. There's no problem. But you're dealing with the world. You're earning money only because somewhere you're offering a service. Somewhere to somebody, you're offering a service. That that service mentally offer it to the Lord. Again, that's true. That's true. Because after all, if Vedanta is at all true, all those people you're serving, they are, the, they are God basically. So the service... Only at the samsara level, it's a job. You can transform it into spirituality as mentally as an offering. Whether it's the customer in a, in a, a store, whether it's a student in a classroom, whether it's a patient in a hospital, whether it's your co-workers, you know, everywhere, mentally, whatever you do for them, yeah. even as part of your regular duties, mentally you're offering this to God. See how powerful an activity that becomes. So everything done religiously, do it for God. Everything done secularly in the job, do it for God. Yajjuhosi, yadadasi. Yatapasyasi. Whatever spiritual practice you do. Tapasya literally means austerities. Suppose you are fasting, you do it as... So tapasya literally means consciously taking on some amount of discomfort. It could be you're fasting. It could be you're waking up early, you know, at 3.40 in the morning for meditation. It's discomfort. But you're doing it for God. Uh, it could be the japa that you are doing. It could be the meditation that you are try doing or are trying to do. And it could, be, uh, it could be duty that you are doing. It may not be particularly pleasant. But it's your duty to look after these members of your family or a community or you turn up for your responsibilities in office when you're not feeling too well. In whatever place you are turning up for duty and you're doing what is expected of you, we do that and you put up with some trouble for doing that. That is also tapasya. He says, do it for me. And when we indriya nigraha, when we control ourselves, I want to eat this, I want to see that, I want to touch this, control, no. That control, Indriya Nigraha, do it for God. I'm doing it for God. Then um, meditation, of course. When you control not only the external body and senses, but the mind, you focus it on God. That also do it for me. Vedantic, Shavana Manana, Vedantic classes, Gita classes, I'm doing it. I'm turning up, taking the trouble for turning up for Gita classes, listening attentively. This is my worship of you. This whole activity, this time, energy, effort I've spent, I'm doing it with reverence because this is my worship uh, of you, my Lord. In this way. That you, you offer unto me. Here five things have been said. Yat, five times yat has been used. Yat means that. Any one of these things if you do for God, just your religious activities you keep on offering to God, or your daily activities you keep on offering to God. Any one of these if you do, these are powerful practices. But if you do all of them, then imagine, whole of our life will be spiritualized. All actions are spiritualized. And you begin to feel uh, the presence of God all the time. Not just in, in time of meditation or in the temple, but all the time. It's God is accessible. Basically, this is giving ourselves to God. It is giving up our this feeling of free will 
to acknowledging that God, there is no free will it is actually god's will and we are continuously giving ourselves up to god i remember um sister niverita disciple of swami vivekananda she would always sign her name as nivedita of ramakrishna vivekananda her name she would say nivedita of ramakrishna vivekananda that i belong to them i have no other identity apart from that um i remember i had gone to her uh, the church where her father was a priest in in devonshire in england so she died in india she came to india gave her whole life for swami vivekananda's work especially women's education many things she did she died um in their family crypt in devonshire when her father her brother her really mother they are all buried there her ashes are also there how jagdish bose the scientist after she died in india she was cremated he took some of her ashes and when he went to england he went on that journey to that remote village it's still one of the tiniest little villages on the western coast of england in devonshire he went there to that church and he put some of those ashes in the family crypt and there was and put an inscription there here lies nivedita of ramakrishna vivekananda and i went there and i saw faint letters the letters have become faint and we were at that time it was a uh, initiative by devotees and the government of west bengal also to install a bust of sister nivedita there so we did that but it was very touching to see in the faint letters there written more than a century ago here lies nivedita of ramakrishna vivekananda that complete giving of herself to the herself to the lord and this comes from saint teresa of avila she would always call herself um teresa of uh, teresa of jesus so there's a very beautiful story um, the saint she had a vision of a divine person with a beard jesus christ she had a vision of that and in that vision this person asked her who are you and as was her nature she automatically said i'm teresa of jesus who are you and the, that figure replied i am jesus of teresa mm-hmm. yeah. so that closeness which comes to god when i give everything see we have limited ourselves by thinking that we are this one i am this person this is my life this is who i am but we have limited ourselves we have become very small the moment we let go of this little identity we throw it into the ocean called ishwara bhagwan we become infinite we don't become zero we become infinite which is our real nature brahman sachidananda we get that by getting which nothing more remains to be got we become established in that by being established in which the greatest of sorrows cannot shake you krishna himself says that yan labdhva na chaparam labham manyate tato adhikam getting which there is no gain greater than this to be got this means sthito dukhe na guruna api na vichalyate being established in which the greatest of sorrows cannot shake you so sorrows will keep coming past karma which we have set up they will keep coming but now you are they cannot touch you you have you are now centered in your infinite nature so he says tat kurushwa madarpanam then uh, just one more point here at what happens if somebody says that all right all the wrong things mischievous things illegal things which i am doing i am going to offer that to the lord why are you stealing well it's my worship of the lord <laughs> and there were people who did it there were um, these decoits so they they went out to rob religiously they would first worship um, the terrible form of the divine mother kali and then go out to rob now is that allowed this is no mother panam you are uh, remember you are offering it to god so that which is you are offering to god if you are offering something to god you m- it must be according to the commands the dictates the the ethics set out by god if god says no to something how can i do that and say i offer it to god then, then i'm i'm going then i'm doing what i want not what god wants so evil destruction harm caused to others cannot be offered to god in, in uh, the technical term is nishiddha the prohibited actions cannot be offered to god 
Vivekananda also says, Swami Vivekananda in one place says, anything that we do can be done to God as long as it is not uh, like openly immoral or unethical. So what happens is the unethical, the immoral goes out of our lives and everything else becomes connected to God and offered to God. The result, 28th verse, is freedom, moksha. Yeah, let me just finish. Hold on to the question. I'll just finish the 28th verse. Shubha Shubha Phalai Revam Shubha Shubha Phalai Revam Moksha Se Karma Bandhanai Moksha Se Karma Bandhanai Sanyasa Yoga Yuktatma Sanyasa Yoga Yuktatma Vimukto Mamu Paishasi Vimukto Mamu Paishasi Thus you will be rid of the bonds of action Resulting in good and evil, being free and with your mind endowed with the yoga of renunciation, you will attain me. So the result will be, we will continue to live in our lives and work as we are doing now, but you will be free of the law of karma. That, where we started, we are trapped. We are like that elephant sinking, caught by our past karma. That crocodile represents our past sins. Holding us and dragging us ever deeper into samsara. We are unable to escape. We don't have the strength to escape by ourselves. So by doing this, offering to the Lord and connecting every action to the Lord, we are free. We become free of the good and evil uh, effects of karma. Why good effects? Because good effects also bind. Vivekananda says, chains though of gold are not less strong to bind. So the chains of gold are punya, good good karma. What happens with good karma? You get to go to heaven, you become a Gandharva. <laughs> so you get to go to heaven, good karma. Bad karma, mischievous karma, we suffer in this world and other hellish worlds. But we are free of both, we are offering everything to the Lord. And he says, sannyasa yoga yuktatma. This is equal to monasticism, this is equal to becoming a sannyasi. Um, this is the core idea. It's not putting on a fancy dress, you know. Somebody said, why are you have you draped yourself in bed sheets? <laughs> in an orange bed sheet. <laughs> so the real meaning of sannyasa is actually this. Complete giving up of oneself. Not I, but thou my Lord. In all my actions, in all my positions. Not my positions, everything belongs to the Lord. And all activities are done for the Lord. So this is called sannyasa. The commentator Sridhar Swami here says, Taishya vimuktasan, being free of the effects of karma. Sannyasa yoga yuktatma. Sannyasa, what is sannyasa? What is becoming a monk or a sannyasi? Karmanam madarpanam. Saeva yoga tena yukta. He says, Chittam yasya. So the one whose mind has this attitude that I am offering all my actions and the results of the actions to God, that is sannyasi. That you, you may be working on Wall Street, you may be uh, a family man, but internally this is what Krishna considers to be a sannyasi. But it's a revolutionary change in our view of life. We either, what we do is, we are either not interested in spiritual life, or when we are, we make a part of our life spiritual. The rest of it is mine. <laughs> no, it is not mine. Le all of it is the Lord's. You see the tremendous freedom and peace and joy you will get. Yes. So Girish goes famously. He uh, was he used to drink heavily, and um, Sri Ramakrishna said, "It's all right. Just offer it to the Divine Mother and take it as her prasad." <laughs> and he did that. And over time, he he became a saint. He gave it all up. I mean, and he didn't have to make a tremendous effort of will. It just dropped off. He didn't want it anymore. So, uh, can you do that? You can. You can. I knew this monk. It might sound strange that monks smoke. But once upon a time, everybody smoked and monks also smoked. Now nobody does it. But So, this monk, he was an Irishman. And uh, a very elderly monk when I saw him. A disciple of Swami Shivananda. 
His, his name was Swami Pavanananda. We used to call him Shambhu Maharaj. So he used to smoke uh, cigarettes. And then he would put it out. And the little stub, he would light it again and smoke it. Then somebody came to him and said, Swami, I'll get you new ones. You don't have to do that. You throw it away. I'll get you a new packet, packet of new cigarettes. So I'll throw away these stubs. And then he said, no, no, I can't do that. That is Swamiji's Prasad. <laughs> what do you mean Swamiji's Prasad? He offers it to Vivekananda mentally and they takes it as, as Prasad. <laughs> and he means it seriously. He means it. Oh, there's another thing. One good practice is whatever we eat and drink, he says, Yadashnasi, actually deliberately do that. I've seen many, many monks, they've made it a lifelong habit. Before putting anything into their mouths, they will offer it to the Lord. Mentally, actually offer it. Feel that the Lord, Sri Ramakrishna, Krishna, Rama, in whichever form, is accepting it. Now it has become prasad. It could be a piece of bread, it could be a cookie, it could be a cigarette. Now it is not cigarette, now it would be a joint. What? <laughs> a weed. <laughs> so, but you feel it's, it's, it's prasad. Make it a habit not to put anything in your mouth, a, any food or drink, without it becoming prasad first. It's, it's a practice. And it'll, after some time it becomes a habit. I've seen a monk, Naruda Maharaj, a very interesting monk. Incredible. He was blind. When I saw him, he was blind in both eyes, both legs paralyzed, one hand paralyzed. And one of the most joyful persons I've ever seen. I mean, he taught me what it means to be, uh, means to transcend the body. So transcend the body doesn't mean coming out of the body like a puff of smoke or like a beam of light. It means being there in this, in that devastated wreck of a body and being complete. I never saw that man complain. I was in the hospital bed next to him for a month. I was the youngest patient. He was the oldest patient in that hospital for a month. And I watched him day and night. This person, old man, who he's a monk, he has no family, nobody to look after him. I mean, no family members, no relatives. Blind in both eyes, he can't see. Both legs paralyzed, he can't walk. He's entirely dependent on the caretakers. So joyful. He never ever complains about the slightest bit of discomfort. It's as if he's not even aware of it. Anytime you go to him, he will ask, you have to identify yourself, he can't see you. So you have to tell who you are, where you have come from. He will ask which ashram you have come from, which place you have come from, how people are doing there. Please convey my best wishes and my salutations, namaskars to them. Uh, very clear. I remember one day in the evening in the hospital, we were uh, um, in the evening. I was there and some monks who work in the hospital, they used to come to the ward where the patients were and the monks were. And they would talk, would gossip, you know. After the end of the day, the evening, they would come and generally relax and talk with us. I would talk, I was talking. And this old Swami, he was in the corner in the bed. He couldn't see. From there he shouts, Stop gossiping! Time for meditation! And in, um, I mean, the exact, exact translation would be, Oh monk, the evening comes. Stop your idle chatter. Um, think of the Lord. So, this kind of person. Why am I saying this? He would not eat anything without offering it to Sri Ramakrishna. But his offering was marathon. That means he would not start eating until he really felt that Sri Ramakrishna has accepted it. So, when you give a plate and food before him, and somebody has to help him to eat. So, he will take up a little bit in, and put it like this. He will sit and put the hand like this and mentally think about Sri Ramakrishna. <laughs> and he will stay like that. 5 minutes, 10 minutes, 15 minutes, half an hour, 1 hour. <laughs> the food will become cold. Until he feels that the Lord has accepted it, then only will he eat. So sometimes his meal, which is at 12 o'clock, supposed to be at noon or before noon, he would eat at 2 o'clock or 3 o'clock. <laughs> so the whole point was, I'll never eat anything that has not been offered, as not a prasada of God. So yes, it can transform. One need not be shy. Um, Small little weaknesses which are not harmful for others, not total violations of moral codes. If they are total violations, one must take the help of God and say sorry and try not to repeat it again. If they are small weaknesses, offer it to the Lord, it will be uh, swept away. It will, it will not hold you back. 
शांति 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 हरि ओम तत्सत्मकृष्णारुपणमस्तु That Swami Laluda Maharaj, I remember. So, uh, in his room in the monastery, there was a boy who used to take care of him. So he had a uh, a rosary, a japa mala, which had been given to him by his guru. His guru was Swami Vigyanananda Ji, a disciple of Sri Ramakrishna. So that japa mala, the boy would put it in his hands because the Swami would always be lying. I mean, he, he was paralyzed and blind, and he would keep the the rosary on his chest and repeat the mantra like this. When he was done, the boy would take it and put it in front of a set of pictures of Sri Ramakrishna, Mahasharada, and Vivekananda, which were in his room, in that monk's room, and flowers would be arranged. Now the boy's duty was every day he would change the flowers. One day the there was a different boy who came to lo- uh, do that work, and he didn't know. He was, he was told to throw away the old flowers into the river, the Ganga, and put new flowers. So he didn't know that the rosary was in the middle of those flowers. So he took the whole lot and he threw the whole lot into the river, and the rosary was lost, which had been given to him um, some sixty or seventy years ago by a disciple of Sri Ramakrishna. Now, how did I know about this? I was a young novice at our uh, monastic training center. One of our masters, an acharya called Swami Jushtanandaji, he told me this has happened. I'm rushing to the bedside of that old swami i said i'll come along because i had seen that swami in the hospital so i went along and my teacher that acharya the master identified himself i am swami so and so i've come from the place where the young monks are trained i heard this has happened please don't worry swami i will go um to the president the president's quarter president maharaj's quarters and get a new rosary for you um and uh, you can continue to do your japa your repetition repetition of the mantra now listen to what that old swami said lying in the bed i tell you in bengali and then translate he said o jak or kaj hoye gache let it go its work is done now if you can he said to that swami to my teacher now if you can can you send somebody to read out from the upanishads and gita to me now it means He has gone to that level where the teachings of the Upanishads and Gita are realities for him. Yeah. What a mantra is supposed to do, the rosary is supposed to do, it's done for him. That means he has realized that. Mm. Incredible. So these are the things that you see. <laughs> yes, have I done the Shanti mantra? Yes, I have. 